0: Well, Faith Bridge, it's great to be back with you for a second week in a row, and as I was just thinking about this morning, and as I think about my kids, you know what I found myself sad about for my children? I'm sad that because television is on demand now, my kids will really never get to experience the joy of being sucked into an infomercial. I don't know if you've ever found yourself sitting on the couch, and then you realize that you've been channel surfing, and then you find yourself lingering on a channel for 5 minutes, 10 minutes, even 15 minutes, and you realize that after 10-15 minutes, you have been watching and gotten sucked into an infomercial. And so I was just thinking back to some of the infomercials that I've gotten sucked into, some of the greatest infomercials of all time. For example, the George Foreman Grill. I don't know if you've ever had a George Foreman Grill, but man, that thing was incredible. If there's any office fans out there right now, you know that Michael Scott burned his foot on a George Foreman grill because he always enjoys having sizzling hot bacon in the mornings, but that was a huge infomercial. What about the ShamWow towel? This towel was incredible because it had the ability to absorb uh, 10 times its weight which is just phenomenal, and so you see these commercials of people wringing out these towels with all this liquid, and then after the ShamWow towel, there was the Snuggie. That's more recent development in the last 10 years, but the Snuggie was incredible because you'd see these commercials of people who were struggling to stay warm under a blanket while they were trying to change the channels. Enter the Snuggie, which was basically a blanket with sleeves. And so you see these commercials, these infomercials of people being able to channel surf with ease and comfort because they're no longer trying to keep the blanket on themselves while extending an arm. Uh, The reason that infomercials were so effective is because they were five, 10, 15 minutes of results. That's what made infomercials so effective, is that they were showing us the results. And as we would look at the results, something in us would want those results to be true of ourselves. And so there would be times where I'm watching a Bowflex commercial where it's basically a guy just flexing his abs for 20 minutes and I'd look down and I'd look up and I'd be like, there's something different here. Or you see the George Foreman grill or the ShamWow towel and something in you decides I want that. Like, I want that to be true of me. It's the results. And the reason I tell you that is because as we step back into my favorite passage in the entire Bible, John chapter 15, what we are going to find is the results of abiding. And what I hope that you... See today, as we, in a sense, read the results of abiding, I hope that you read the results and something inside of you begins to say, you know what, I want that, I want that to be true of me. So if you have a Bible, turn with me this morning to John chapter 15, as we look at the results of abiding. And if you weren't with us last week, we looked at John chapter 15 verses 4 and 5, and I told you that of all the passages in the Bible, this is by far, without a doubt, hands down my favorite passage in the entire Bible, because when I heard this passage taught by Pastor Greg Mott when I was in college, I felt like I was being handed a key. I felt like I was being handed the key to life, and as I told you last week, it. I firmly believe that the key to life is packaged into one five-letter word. It is the word abide. And what we said last week is, is to abide in Christ, that's the key to life, and to abide means complete and continuous connection and desperate dependence upon Jesus Christ. If you decide to be completely and continuously connected to Jesus, and if you are desperately dependent upon him, You can expect three results and we will see those results in verses six through eight to today. But I'll go ahead and tell you the the three results. Number one, if you abide in Christ, you will live a useful life. Number two, you will live an expectant life. And number three, you will live a glorifying life. So look with me, John chapter 15, verses six through eight. This is right after Jesus has called us to abide In Him, And he's using the imagery of a grapevine. He says this in verse 6. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The first result of abiding in Christ is that you will live a useful life. Look back at verse six really quickly. What did Jesus say? He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, uh, at first glance, this seems like a very um, concerning verse. Uh, And this is a debated verse. If you go and read commentaries, Different people believe different things. So let me just tell you the three options, and then I'll tell you what I really think it's saying. Number, the first option, when Jesus is talking about being uh, thrown away and, and burned, is that he's talking about Christians who lose their salvation because of an insufficient relationship with Jesus and a commitment to his ways. I don't think that that is the right interpretation of this passage. Because if you look at the rest of scripture, the the scriptures provide clear evidence that we can't lose our salvation. So I think about what Paul says in, in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So anytime you see a difficult passage, especially Jesus is using an I- imagery here. And so you don't want to read too much into the imagery. You always have to interpret in a, a difficult verse in light of what the rest of the Bible says. <clears throat> the second interpretation is that Jesus is talking about people who say that they're Christians, but they're actually not. They have a fake faith. Now we we need to talk about those of you who have a fake faith but i don't think that that's what jesus is talking about here because i because of the context and that'll become clear in a minute but let me just say this before we move on maybe you're sitting there and your faith is fake i just want to lovingly tell you you know what god sees god sees clearly and god loves you too much to settle for a second-hand spirituality. You think about secondhand smoke, that is smoke that you breathe in from someone else smoking. God won't settle for you having a secondhand spiritual experience. No, he loves you too much to live off of someone else's faith. So if you have a fake faith, let today be the day that it becomes an authentic faith. The third interpretation, which I believe is the best interpretation, is that Jesus is talking about the uselessness of the life of a believer who doesn't abide. And the reason I say that is because of the context. In verse three, Jesus tells us who he's talking to. He's talking to 11 of the 12 disciples. Judas has already left. So he's talking about the authentic, his authentic followers. And then in verses four and five, he calls his friends to abide in them. Why would he command his believing friends to abide in him if there wasn't the risk of them not abiding in him. And so he commands them to abide because there's the possibility of them not abiding. And so right now he's showing what happens if they choose not to abide. And remember what he said right at the end of verse five. What did he say? He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so verse six is just further um, further explanation of that reality that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. You think about a branch that is living apart from the vine. What does that branch become? It becomes a withered stick. A branch cannot really live or thrive or bear fruit apart from the vine. And so Jesus is, is, is explaining that. And he's saying, if you live apart from Jesus... Your life will be useless. The The life of Jesus cannot flow through your life effectively when you do not abide in him. Your life becomes a stick. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen the branch of a grape vine, but they're very small, very thin. Like when that thing dries up and becomes a stick, you're not going to build a coffee table with that. You can't even put a marshmallow on it for s'mores. And so I think Jesus is just, he's just explaining the entire culture, the the entire process that would take place with, with branches that are no longer abiding, they would just get gathered up and burned because they no longer have any use. And so What is Jesus truly telling us? Here's what I think his point is. I think his point is you can't lose your salvation, but you absolutely can lose your usefulness. You can lose your usefulness. He's talking about living a useless life. And that idea should be terrifying to us. Just the thought that we could live useless lives. That's terrifying because no one wants to live a useless life. We all want to live useful lives. So many people watching right now, we are achievers. We want our lives to count and we want to accomplish a lot. A good question to ask yourself is this, who are you trying to be useful to? Because if you're honest with yourself, some of us, we're trying to be useful To everyone around us, we want to be useful to our boss. We want to be useful to our family. And those things aren't bad things. But when our usefulness is determined by our activity and our ability, you know what our usefulness will boil down to? It will boil down to how much we are doing and how well we're doing it. And so if you're honest right now, if you're trying to be useful for your boss, if you're trying to be useful for your family, or you're trying to be useful to your social media followers, you want people to look into your life and be like, look at how much that person does. That person accomplishes a lot. Look at all that she is doing. Look at how many friends that person has and what a blessing they are to society. Your usefulness is being boiled down to your activity and ability. But what we have to understand is that we're not talking right now about being useful to other people. We're talking about being useful to God. What does it mean to be useful in the eyes of God? If Jesus is telling us the truth right now, then a useful life is an abiding life. Which is the branch that withers up? It's the branch that doesn't abide. It's the one that doesn't abide. And so this is pretty terrifying because here's what it means. It means the smartest person watching right now can be living a useless life to God. The most high capacity person, the most skilled musician watching right now, the, the, the best entrepreneur in the world can be living a useless life to God. God, why? Don't miss this. Because the usefulness of your life isn't measured by your activity or ability, but by your availability. You see the difference? See, if you're trying to be useful to the entire world, your usefulness is being measured by your activity and your ability. But God doesn't measure your usefulness by your activity or by your ability. He measures it by your availability. See, the useful life is an abiding life, and availability is the natural disposition of an abiding life. You are available for Jesus' life to flow through you, producing fruit that is a blessing to those around you. I need you to understand God is committed to accomplishing his purposes through those who are available. If you don't believe me, just look at the people that he built his church upon. Look at the, the, look at the apostles. I mean, what do we find out about the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 13? They get arrested. And it says this, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were what? Uneducated. These aren't the smartest guys in the room. They are common men. They're not the most useful to society. But they were useful to God. Why? It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. An abiding life is a useful life. So here's what I need you to hear. God doesn't need you to do more or do better. He needs you to abide. If you abide in Christ, your first, the first result is going to be that you live a useful life. Number two, you'll live an expectant life. What does he say in verse 7? I love this. He says this. He says, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So another one of the results of abiding is that you actually get to see God answer more of your prayers. Here's the thought behind abiding. The word abide, it means to dwell. So Jesus is saying, let's live all of life together because when you spend every moment of every day with someone, you become like them. And so Jesus wants a type of relationship with you that doesn't end after 10 minutes reading your Bible in the morning. He wants a 24 hours a day, seven days a week relationship where you are spending time with him, walking through life. And as you live life with him, you know what? You begin to talk like he talks. You begin to think like he thinks and act like he acts. And you even begin to pray as he prays. See, your heart gets synced up with his heart. That's why Psalm 37 verse 4 says this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Because when you abide in Christ, It's like your device is syncing up with the cloud. When you abide in Christ, your heart syncs up with your heavenly father's heart. And so his desires become your desires and you begin to pray what is already in God's heart and so you begin to live expectantly because you begin to pray god's heart and then you live expectant that you're actually going to see god answer your prayers because you are praying god's heart let me explain it this way just a couple of weeks ago my son noah turned 11 And uh, the night before his birthday, I took it upon myself to decorate the inside of our house for his birthday because my wife was out for the evening with some friends. And so I'm not really a good decorator, but uh, after Noah and Andrew went to sleep, I got out all the decorations on the table. So we had a few different happy birthday banners. We had Uh, one color of streamer that I was going to use. And while I had everything laid out on the table, Noah came out of his bedroom to use the restroom. And I was standing right there with all the decorations, with the happy birthday banners. And so he comes out and he now knows what is in my heart for him. He knows that it is my plan to decorate the house for him and so while he's out there i even ask him hey dude which happy birthday banner do you want now that you know what's happening which one do you want he chose the harry potter one because that's what he had last year and so he was going to do that again and then he went to sleep and i spent a lot of time hanging the banner and and putting balloons up and using one color streamer so i had the house decorated and the next morning noah wakes up and he's coming down the hall And he is so expectant, he's so giddy and excited to see the culmination of everything that was in his father's heart. You know what the cool thing was? Catherine, my wife came home that night and she saw my decorations and she thought it was so sweet, but then she graciously informed me that she actually had a new birthday banner and Avengers birthday banner. And she had new balloons, Avengers balloons. And so we got those things set up. And when Noah rounded the corner and he saw the culmination of everything that was in his father's heart, it was far better than he could have ever imagined. The reason I tell you this is because this is what our lives can be like when we abide in Christ, when we begin to pray expectantly, when Jesus's words become our words in prayer. We can live expectant that we're going to see God answer great prayers. And our God is the God who does immeasurably more. And so we don't just get to see him answer prayers how we think he's going to do it. He always does it better. And so I tell you that just to say, you know what, your prayer life is actually a good litmus test for how you're doing with abiding. Like answer this question, this is a good diagnostic test. Are you praying like verse seven in John 15 says what it says, which is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Or are you praying like it says, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Because it will be the difference between living expectantly and living wishfully. To live wishfully is to treat God like a genie, He exists to grant your wishes. To live expectantly is to live as if you exist to see God grant all that He wishes. See, here's the problem with treating God like a genie. He isn't one. And so right now we might be uncovering the reason why you're disappointed in God, because you have wished for something and he hasn't given you what you wished. But he's not a genie. He is God, he's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the one who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. He's working all things for good. He's a healer. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's in the business of raising the spiritually dead to life. He is a miracle worker. Answer this question. If God answered every prayer that you prayed today, what would come true? What would change? For some of you, nothing would change, and that's just a realization that you're really not praying for anything. For others of you, everything would just go as it should be, or your life might be more comfortable, or maybe you'd see God do incredible things. Here's what I need you to understand. It's, it's not bad to, to, to pray for God to supply your needs. He tells us to do that. It's not bad to pray for a spouse. It's not bad to pray for God to do a great work in, in, you know, and to give you favor at work. These are good things to pray. But I'll just say this, if the greatest beneficiary of your prayers is you, then you're probably treating God more like a genie than the God that he is. So how do you respond? let his word become your words in prayer. Like each time you read this book, take these words and just turn them into prayers. Like for me, when when people are hurting, when they've lost a loved one. Psalm thirty-four eighteen says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in the spirit. So that's how I pray. I say, God, you are near to the brokenhearted. You know what they need more than I would ever know what they need. I don't have the right words to say, but I pray that you'd be near because that's what you do. Let his words become your word. Try that. As you read this text, try and turn verses into prayers. You know what reading and studying and treasuring the word of God does? It allows you to see what you never knew to wish for. So you do abide in Christ. Here's the first two results. Number one, you're going to live a useful life. Number two, you're going to live an expectant life. And number three, you're going to live a glorifying life. What does Jesus tell us in verse 8? He says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is telling us, by this my father is glorified. And that's really important because the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us this. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God. And enjoy him forever. This is the chief end of man. This is the the point of your life. It is to glorify God. Now, I want to make sure that we truly understand what it means for God to be glorified. So let's just unpack for a moment terminology that we use often, but we might not truly understand. When we talk about the glory of God, here's what we're talking about. Uh, The the word for glory in the Old Testament is the word kabod, and it, it means literally weighty or heavy. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the, the weightiness of God. We're talking about his grandness, his impressiveness. We're talking about his incomparable greatness or the unfathomable beauty unfathomable beauty and majesty of God see god is weighty he is glorious he doesn't need us to determine if he is glorious he is glorious whether you realize it or not to glorify god is simply to respond to his weight and I apologize in advance that the best illustration that I can give you to really make this clear is a water blob. I don't know if you've ever seen a water blob at, at camp, but it's, like a, it's almost like a big balloon in the water or a big kind of almost trampoline in the water. And so what someone does is they climb up on a platform while another person lays on the blob. And when that person jumps and hits the blob, it catapults this other person in the air. And here's how a blob works. The greater the weight, the higher the flight, and the bigger the splash. See, when you position yourself under the weightiness of God, when you spend time reading his word, when you when you meditate on who God is, when you when you position yourself to To ponder his love and his grace and his majesty and his his power, his, his presence, his wrath, his justice. When you position yourself under his weight, the higher the flight and the bigger the splash, your life begins to declare, this is how great my God is. This is how glorious he truly is. And your life glorifies God. Your life points to the weightiness and the value of God. See, to abide in Christ is to dwell with Christ. It's to live awake to his presence in his plans and his power. It's to delight in him and enjoy him. To abide is to live a life beholding the glory of God. What is the natural result of a life beholding the glory of God? It's fruit. It's fruit. It's a life that proclaims how good God is, how valuable he is to an unbelieving world. You live a life that is glorifying to him. Now, Let me just say this, why why does God tell us to glorify Him? Doesn't that sound selfish that God would tell us to glorify Him? This isn't selfish, it's generous. Because who or what else could God point us to that would be more satisfying to us than Himself? Nothing in this world compares to how satisfying the glory of God truly is, nothing. See, an abiding life is a useful life. It is a useful life, it's an expectant life, it's a glorifying life. I just wanna end by showing you how Jesus ended verse eight. What does he say? He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and what so prove so prove to be my disciples. So you know what happens when you abide and you live a useful and expectant and glorifying life? Your life begins to bear fruit and you begin to prove to be Jesus's disciples. People begin to look into your life and they They see Jesus in your life. They see the fruit of Jesus and they begin to want to taste. It's a good apple. They begin to want to taste Jesus. I got to choose this thing. Can you taste that apple? can you taste, that is a crisp apple. Can you just, can you taste it in your mouth right now? Isn't that interesting how that works? I of mean, you guys are wanting an apple for the first time in a long time. See, so when people look into your life and they see Jesus and they see the fruit of Jesus, they begin to want to taste Jesus. See, this is how it works. We're reading the results of abiding And as you hear that the results are that you live a useful and expectant and glorifying life, something in you is saying, you know what, I want that. But as you want that and you begin to abide and Jesus' fruit begins to be born in your life, people begin to look at your life and see your fruit, see your results, and they say, I want that. So you, you understand what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about a type of life That is glorifying to God Satisfying to you And a blessing to others Don't you want that? If you do Here's the application for this week Abide Let's pray together Lord Jesus I thank you for who you are I thank you for how much you love us Lord, I thank you that you've shown us the key to life. The key to life is abiding in you. And if there's anyone watching today who doesn't know you in a personal way, that they've never experienced salvation in you, then I pray even right now as they're listening, they would cry out to you through prayer. They would invite you into their lives. That they would ask you for forgiveness for their sins and that they would begin an eternal relationship with you. But Lord, I pray for the people watching. I pray that we would be people who abide this week. And I pray that by abiding, we would live useful and expectant and glorifying lives. We need your help to do it, Lord. Thank you that you don't need us to do more or do better you need us to abide, to be completely and continuously connected to you and desperately dependent upon you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.